Father, we just uh, thank you. Thank you that we can be in the house of worship. Thank you that uh, you are a loving and a graceful and a faithful God. Be with Dave this morning as he leads us. Be with Pastor Bob this morning as he brings the message. And we just thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to read Mitch's favorite psalm because I'm not prepared. Which one? The 23rd psalm. Yes. How about Proverbs 31? You can read that. that okay, there we go. Proverbs 31. It's Mother's Day. Let's read Proverbs 31. Yeah, starting at verse 10. You want to read out? Okay. An excellent wife who can talk to her. Her word is smarter than a little bit. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of being. She does him good and not evil. She lives her walls and works with her hands in delight. She plays friendship. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it's still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maiden. She considers her real advice from her earnings to plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Her senses that her gain is she senses that her gain is good, her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hand from the distaff, and her hand grasps the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow, for her household, for, her house, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself, her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates, and he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teachings of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have been noble, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands. Let her works praise her and the gates. Amen. Amen. So, yeah. <laughs> what was the same? When did she sleep? <laughs> well, yeah. actually, that is a question. <laughs> I, always, I always encourage uh, young folks that are having their first kid. Because they're not going to sleep for about 20 years. <laughs> just kind of the way it works. Even after that, sometimes. Even after that, yeah. Um, see, we're in, in chapter 5 of Hebrews. And last week we did get one question. And I, I recognize that I passed through some passages quickly. It seems like I saved chunks of the meat for the end. And some of that's intentional. Right? want to create, you know, areas we have pondered. 
uh, one of the questions that came up last week when we were looking at what's being introduced in this, uh, this section is the high priest. And we're going to see the high priest uh, role and mission uh, fully developed through chapter 10. So it's a very important uh, passage of scripture that's being introduced here. And what we've seen is we've seen that uh, Jesus is, is fully God, he's the son of God, and that Jesus is fully human, he's the son of man, in the sense of sharing in our humanity. Um, he's also the king, the Lord. And we've had a couple of warning passages that we aren't to neglect that revelation. Um, and that we are, um, if we look at, at the warnings, they're, they're basically encouraging us to, uh, uh, to practice discipleship. And we're going to see another warning passage coming up. Uh, but I wanted to take a, a minute to discuss a question that came up last week on verse 7. So in, in describing the high priest, it says, For every high priest is taken from among, uh, taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men. So there's a contrast going on between the way that the human office of high priest is developed and the way that the... Um, the corporate cultic office of high priest is developed, and that uh, the high priest that is the true high priest in heaven, and then the high priest that is appointed by men is a pattern after what comes in heaven. So, what we see is we see the qualifications for our high priest, that he's appointed, that he's fully human, that he offers gifts, and that he's compassionate towards sinners. And so there's this contrast, and I'll just read it, and then we'll get to verse 7 here. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also possessed of weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This has to do with appointment. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to one able to save him from death. He was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obeyed him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, in this, these, from 7 through 10, you see um, the other, uh, beyond appointment, the other qualifications of the high priest. The idea that the high priest is fully human, which, why, which is why it was necessary um, and previewed from the beginning of history, from the beginning of time uh, in creation, that God knew that Christ was going to come as a man and that he would share in the suffering of, of humanity and actually take sin upon himself in order to redeem humanity. So he had to be fully human, and that's what's being developed in uh, this passage, as well as the idea of offering gifts and, and uh sacrifice for sin, and then having compassion for the sinners in the process. 
So when we see in verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. He was hurt because of his piety. And so last week I mentioned that uh, a, a picture of that is the Garden of Gethsemane. So the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ, in uh, knowing what was to transpire, so he had uh, foreknowledge according to Scripture, so that which was revealed to him in scripture, he knew to be true because he knows the Father. And so he knew what was coming. He knew that he was going to take the sin of the world upon himself, that he would suffer, and that he would die, and that he would be raised on the third day. So he had that confidence. But nonetheless, as a fully human being, that is a great trial. And we all understand that as we approach uh, our death, that that is a great trial. It's not something that is easily entered into. Uh, even Christ himself struggled in that regard. At least that's what I, what I was communicating. And that in that struggle, <clears throat> and this, is, <clears throat> this struggle happens in many areas. I think that's a, a major example of the kind of struggle and trial that we have. That uh, in the in the trial, temptation comes, and we have the temptation is to obey God and do that which he asks us, or to disobey and do that which we choose, what we deem is good. And so I characterize the struggle of Christ in the garden as a struggle to conform to the will of God, to fully execute the will of God. And... Uh, I got a question, which I think is a very good question. It says, uh, in regard to Gethsemane, right, <clears throat> Christ's struggle uh, to not have to do what he came to do, which is what I was indicating. Um, and the statement is, this is impossible. And they quote uh, other scripture says, he set his face like a flint to accomplish his task, which we understand that that's exactly what Christ did. When he was making his final journey from... Uh, the northern area of Israel and Galilee to Jerusalem, it says he set his, his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined. That's exactly what he was going to do, even though he knew what the outcome would be. And he kept telling people along the way, you know, I'm going for the purpose of uh, sacrifice. I'm going for the purpose of laying down my life. So, sure enough, he understood that. He says, in the the writer here says, I do not believe uh, he asked God to not have him die on a cross. But according to Kenneth West, and I'm not sure of uh, Kenneth West is, I may have read some of this stuff, I'm not sure. Christ prayed to be from out within death. In other words, to be resurrected from death. And the question is, does this seem like a better translation? In other words, was uh, Christ's prayer, where he was grieving, to be delivered from death, which you could certainly um, read that in that passage. So if we look at, uh, and I think I took you to the Luke passage, it's in many of the Gospels, so I think we looked at Luke 22. In, in talking, uh, and I'll read the passage for you. It says, and he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples, so this is chapter 22 of Luke, verse 39. Um, and his disciples also followed him. 
When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So uh, when, I, when I read a passage like this, I look for the, the, uh, the cues that give me insight as to how it's being organized and what the main uh, thrust is of a particular passage. And I see that this is framed by the word temptation. So that this is about entering into temptation and what you deal with, do when you deal with temptation. <clears throat> what do you think Christ's final words uh, to us would be? I mean, we're, he knows that we're in the world, we're going to struggle in the world, and we're going to face trials, right? And he says, you know, be at peace in the midst of trial because I have overcome. And we understand that there's a message that there's more to the story than just what you see. Right? That there is a deliverance of God that comes. And how you respond in the midst of that, that's how you respond to temptation. And so he's, this is uh, preserved for us so that we can wrestle with, when we wrestle with temptation, we can see what Christ did. And so my interpretation was around will and obedience. Uh, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So I think it has to do with struggling with the will of God. And that would be struggling in obedience. Um, however, it could legitimately be interpreted that the cup itself is the focus. Lord, remove this cup from me. Right? In other words, deliver me from this death. And I think that's um, what the, the basis behind uh, Kenneth West's uh, interpretation would be. And that what Christ was asking from <clears throat> asking was that he would be delivered from death, that he would be resurrected. Now, he knew what God was going to do, so he knew he was going to be resurrected. So in a sense, there wasn't any question about God fulfilling what he said he was going to fulfill. And so that's why I take the different interpretive slant. It's not about questioning whether God will resurrect or not resurrect, or whether God will... Um, uh, command that death be the payment or the, the penalty, the consequence of disobedience and sin. Um, that's certain, and Christ knew that. Um, rather, it's in the midst of that, knowing that you have to embrace that. So what is it to be fully human? Well, to be fully human, we wrestle with that every day. Ever since the garden, the fall in the garden, we wrestle with the will of God, and doing the will of God, and being obedient. And that's why these warning passages in Hebrews are often about obedience, because that's the area where we struggle. It's in temptation. And so that's why I gave the interpretive slant that I did. And I don't know that, uh, and I don't know who, who wrote this, but I, I would... Uh, I would suggest that it is an, an interesting translation, an idea that um, what Christ was praying for was that he would be resurrected from death. I just don't see that consistent with the larger um, 
revelation in Scripture. I think that rather this is about wrestling with the will of God. Does that make sense? Okay. And I think you know Christ was concerned about you know, the, the agony that's going to be. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's the thing. Being fully human, he knew what that meant. <laughs> going to a cross, because where Christ lived in Nazareth when he was growing up as a boy, happened to be along a trade route that um, there was a rebellion against Rome uh, in that period of time when he was growing up. And there was actually a number of crucifixions where what they would do is they would crucify people which are criminals of the state. So it's a state crime, um, as opposed to you know stealing from your neighbor. They might chop off your hands, or you know you kill your neighbor. They might take, they might stone you. But to be crucified was uh, that you were uh, a traitor to the state of Rome, and so Rome would command a very extreme action in your death, and they would crucify you, and they would hang you there for everybody to see. It was meant to be a public statement of this is what happens when you're an enemy of the state. And Christ would have seen that growing up in Nazareth because there was a demonstration of that where multiple crucifixions occurred and were put along the road um, for everybody passing along that road to see. And so if you read some of the extra-biblical evidence of things that happened in that period, Christ knew what crucifixion was about. It was a horrific form of, of death and suffering. And so... Being a human being, knowing that that was necessary, right? And, and yet at the end of it, knowing that he would be resurrected, I imagine as a, a fully human being, just like us, he would have lots of questions and lots of concerns and lots of worries. And he would be fretting about that. But it wouldn't be so much uh, in my mind. I mean, we would certainly all, nobody wants to die a horrible death. Who wants to do that? I mean, it's... Kind of like, yeah, I want to die in my sleep like my grandfather, not like the others in the car screaming as he drove off. <laughs> That's the old joke. Um, the idea that we would like to die peacefully, and many, many do. And we have uh, a concept of natural death, as unnatural as death is. Um, we have an idea that, well, people can have a, a peaceful death. And that's what, humanly, we desire. We desire not to suffer. And certainly Christ would have been wrestling with the, the physical anguish that he knew was certain that he was going to go <coughs> Do also the mental pressure, because he knows he's going to have that temporary separation through the name of God, because he took on sin. Yes. And he said, you know, he was, my Lord, my Lord, why are thou forsaken me? Yes. So and and it, um, in one sense, <clears throat> he did not know sin, Right. Um, and not knowing sin, um, and yet he knew that that was going to be placed upon him, there was something unknown to him, right? wasn't unknown to God the Father in that moment, but being fully human, it was unknown to him. And, uh, and that would have been terrifying. And, and, and yet, what he wrestled with is, in the midst of something totally terrifying, he could have retreated from that. He had an option to uh, say something different to the high priest than what he said. He had an option, and the same thing is true when uh, he was tried in the desert. We read it in chapter 4 of of Luke and Matthew. And uh, he was hungry after having fasted for 40 days. Well, yeah. And he was tempted with um, 
using his divine authority to satisfy uh, himself with food. And he, he chose not to. He said, no, that's not the will of the Father in this instance. He said, uh, and, and note that we see that temptation of Christ, the, the multiple temptations of different kind around uh, power and authority, around uh, physical provision, um, around uh, his actual identity uh, as the Son of God, right? So we see him wrestle around those things. And we all wrestle with similar type issues. So it was probable, or possible, I'm not say probable, it was possible for Christ um, to sin in that instance. We, we say it's impossible for God to sin. And we think of the divine nature. But in order to be fully human, it had to be a possibility. If it wasn't a possibility, he couldn't have struggled as we struggle, which is what Hebrews says. So I go to Hebrews chapter 2. And I know this is hard. hard uh, what I'm saying is, is not easy. Just for clarification yeah. for me, every time he withstood all this temptation, mm-hmm. that was done with human strength or divine strength or a mix? It was, it was a mix. And I think that we need to understand that it's a mix for us too. When we face our death and we trust God, He's there to uphold us. But we have this idea of Christ as Superman. We do. I mean, we think that he is different from us, but that's not what the Bible says. It says he was, uh, says, for assuredly, this is chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 16, says, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, and he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So what they're saying is that there's a qualification that's necessary for the high priest that he be fully human, that he be able to identify with uh, the state of what we experience as human beings. The difference is is that he did not sin. He was without sin. So we like to think, well, he had to have had divine uh, aid in in order to not sin. But this goes into our understanding of sin and how it's transmitted, right? And the corruption of sin and original sin. It was absolutely essential that Christ be born of a virgin. And the reason why has to do with original sin and how sin is transmitted. And that Christ is sometimes called the second Adam. right? So you read in Romans chapter 5, and it has to do with his uh, descendancy as a human being is different than the descent of Adam. So we can trace ourselves back to Adam as our father. Jesus traces himself back to the Holy Spirit as his father. But he had fully human descendancy through Mary. Now this is really this is really heady stuff, right? This is not easy. This is the meat uh, that of theology that we wrestle through. Is this true statement what I'm making that Christ could be fully human and fully God? And if he's fully human, what does it mean in that moment when he faces uh, the decision 
Will he obey the will of God, just as Adam was commanded to? Or will he choose his own good? If he did not do that and choose God, he would not be worthy to, to offer a sacrifice in our place. It's a really important concept. So I believe that the struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, although all of those factors were in play, the factors of there were things happening that he didn't fully know. He didn't fully know sin. And uh, I'll give you an example of what that means. Um, I got into uh, an experience where someone sinned against me one time, and it caught me totally by surprise. What happened was someone lied to me. I didn't expect them to lie to me. And as a result of that, uh, a lot of money was taken. Right? And it caught me totally unaware because I would have never lied in that situation because I'm a different person and it just it was not part of my experience to behave that way. That doesn't mean that I've never lied and it doesn't mean that I've never been deceitful. It's just that in this particular kind of context, it would have never have occurred to me to do that. And when I, I was explaining this to a friend of mine, how egregious this sin was, it's like, wow, I can't believe this person did this. They lied to me and they deceitfully took this money that wasn't theirs. Um, he said, that's good that you're grieved by that because that means that it's not in you. It was not part of my experience. It caught me by surprise. Now, can God be surprised? Um, God the Father is not surprised. There is nothing that he does not know. We know that because the Bible tells us that. Christ indicated that there were limitations in his humanity. And we see that clearly expressed. We see it clearly expressed in, in uh, uh, Philippians. We see it expressed in various passages. I mean, I can take you to Philippians chapter 2 where it says, um, in fact I will, just because this is a good theological exercise for God. But this is an important question. What is it that Christ is wrestling with? Because it's, it's germane to us and why a high priest does what he does. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to start in uh, verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So if you look at a King James, it will say, did not consider it robbery. In other words, he was not taking anything from God, um, being equal with God, because he is God. You, don't, you can't steal from yourself. Does that make sense? And so, in the limited language that we have, Paul is saying, Jesus is fully God. Regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That name is Lord. And it goes on to say, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, because this is really challenging 
words here. Um, the cults will say, this is proof that Jesus was not God. Because if he was fully human, he couldn't be fully God. He was like God, but he wasn't fully God. Right? So Jehovah's Witnesses will, will interpret this differently. They'll say, no, he's just a man. He's a good man, but he's just a man. But when I read how it starts out, he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's as clear a statement as Paul could make with the limitation of the language about the divinity of Christ. Not only that, but it's clearly expressed in another letter of his in Colossians, if you just turn a few pages. And we go to Colossians uh, chapter 1. And I'll start at verse 15. Because this is talking about the work of God on our behalf in Christ. I'll back up to 13. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn not meaning born first, but having position above creation. So it has to do with inheritance law. He is the, the rightful inheritor. Um, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. I'll finish that. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So it's talking there, in particularly about the work of God on our behalf, but it clearly expresses who the person of God is in Christ. So it's... it's I, I believe, substantially verified by the authority that I hold the Bible to be, that Jesus is fully divine. But he's also fully human. And being fully human, that means that he struggles as I struggle, but without sin. But he did set aside some of his divinity when he came to the earth. And that would be the sense of uh, foreknowledge. And he said, you know, the Father reserves it for himself to know the times of the end, when these things will be. Now, if you go to Revelation, in Revelation chapter 4, or chapter yeah, 4 and 5, uh, chapter 6 is the opening uh, of the seals of the, the scroll, or the book. That book, I often describe to people as the book of destiny, or the book of all of history, right? It is that which God knows about his creation. It says in, in Isaiah that he knows the, be, the end from the beginning. There, all the days of our lives are written in his book. That's what it says in the Bible. So there is uh, an understanding or a revelation of God that is contained that Jesus did not know to reveal to us in his earthly ministry. But when you read Revelation... Chapter 4, chapter 5 in particular, it starts out in the throne room, and there is one, and it describes him on the throne, God, and one is presented before him, a lion of the tribe of Judah, but he comes forth as a lamb that was slain. 
And he is the only one worthy to take the scroll and to open it. If you read that and you understand what that scroll is all about, it's about what, what's happening there is it's like a will, a testament. We just read in Colossians how all things were created by him, for him, um, that nothing exists apart from him, that he withholds, upholds it all. Well, that would be the rightful heir of the creator, right? So God, the creator, um, wrote a will, and that will is passed on to the rightful heir, and only the rightful heir can open it can break the seals. And what happens is, is in Revelation, as you read in chapter 5, when this is revealed that the, the uh, owner has a will and no one is worthy to open it, there's weeping. And they say, don't worry. There is one. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The descendant of David. The Lamb that was slain. And he comes forth and it's presented to him. Now, the reason this is interesting is because we're going to find out as we look at the language in Hebrews, this very language comes up. It talks about a will being passed from the Father to the Son that only the Son can open. But the Son can't open the will unless there's a death of the one who's written the will, right? In other words, the Son doesn't come into the inheritance until the Father passes, but here's the eternal father. He never passes. How does God die for this will to be passed? Through the death on the cross. The one can be presented worthy and actually take the destiny of all of God's creation in his hand. That's how he can bring salvation. This is heavy, heavy duty theology here, right? It's bringing a lot of things together. But that's what I'm telling you is going on here. When he's presented as high priest, he's fulfilling a role that you read about later in Revelation and that you've read about in Daniel. And that this is, um, this is who Christ is. And we need to understand that he's fully God and fully man. And that this has puzzled people since his resurrection. From the day of his resurrection, first he made proclamations. And people could dismiss whether the word of God was true or not, until it was fulfilled on Easter. When it was fulfilled on Easter, people couldn't argue about it anymore. It was true. And since that day, it's been a puzzle. So, the question for you is, do you believe that truth? That God actually entered into history and became a man like you, but without sin, or a woman like you, but without sin, that he died and is the rightful heir that can free you from the very thing that separates you from God, which is death. And that he cares enough to do that for you. These are the questions that we wrestle with. And so when I look at what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane, everything was in the balance. It wasn't whether God could actually accomplish our forgiveness and redemption through Christ's death, or that Christ would certainly live again. Because we knew that from Revelation. It was in the moment of being fully human, could he with wrestle with the greatest temptation? 
and choose God's will, your will, not mine, be done. And from that point, as soon as he made that statement, as, as hard as it was for him to do, he went forward to the cross and said nothing but what God asked him to say, which was to fulfill revelation. So that's why, that's why when I take a, there's a, a particular um, viewpoint that came out in uh, the 4th century it was called Ap Apollinarianism. And so for those of you that like to Google things, uh, Google Apollinarianism. And it was uh, branded as a heresy by the council at Chalcedon in 381 AD. And what it was is that Christ was fully human and fully God, but they existed as two separate entities within Christ. <clears throat> and that the divine couldn't really mix with the human. And so he wasn't really in the sense that we would understand an integrated person, fully God and fully man. But that would allow him to do things that were fully divine and then still have this struggle as one that was fully man. And that, and that was branded a heresy. There, there is not a, a separation within God. He is whole. And, that's, and this is hard for us. And so I would, I would challenge that... Um, an understanding that what Christ was wrestling with was the certainty of God's revelation is probably not what that passage in Gethsemane was about. I know I way overplayed it, but it's no. it's uh, it's actually very important to what's going to come next. Yes. On just a side note, are the Jews waiting for a, the Messiah to be a man or a god or God? Ah, good question. <laughs> so. This is actually somewhat unique uh, in that Christians believe the, the, uh, the confession of our faith, if you read the Nicene Creed and you read some of these later creeds that came out, the catechisms of the church, Westminster Catechism, we state that God is one, one essence, three persons, and that none are diminished in, that the, in the three three. Uh, persons of God all are fully God that God is not diminished in any and that they are all one essence right this is unique in all of history uh, Judaism on the surface does not believe that Messiah is divine because not that it wasn't revealed to them in the scripture but as it was practiced and as uh, rabbinic uh, commentary was developed, the Mishnah, um, it does not include uh, the possibility that God might actually enter into history. Rather, he would have a suffering servant. So they read uh, the suffering servant in Isaiah significantly different than we read it. We read it as Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, dying on the cross for us. By his stripes we are healed. They read it in a purely human sense. That there is one who is a really dedicated man, you know, and he takes a lot. Um, and that God views that man um, worthy. So it, it, it goes back to the idea of if I have enough favor in God's sight, I can uh, warrant merit. I can warrant worthiness. And most world religions are based upon that concept. The concept of 
uh, the scale of goodness. You know, if I can just accumulate enough goodness, God will overlook my deficit and I will have merit in his presence. And we even have Christian religions that would claim to be Christian um, have that same kind of concept. Um, salvation through sacrament. And I'm not going to pick on anybody in here, but um, the idea of sacrament is obtaining grace, the grace of God. And that if I can obtain enough of God's grace, I can be worthy. But because nobody can really be worthy, you have to go through an extra period of purgation uh, where that last bit of unworthiness is removed from you, right? And you can have, then have enough merit to be present in God's sight. Well, that's right. not what the Bible tells us. By whose value do you rate do that? Correct. See, that's, that's <laughs> the way that men approach God. And that's why I'm saying there is only one true religion. There is only one true God. There is only one Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. When he, what he was saying is, is that all of this other stuff, why is the gate that leads to destruction? And all of those are religions of men. They may have a lot of goodness in them in the sense that, gee, we got great family values, right? Gee, we do great community services. I read Matthew chapter 25 and it talks about the separation of the, the goats and the sheep. And, and those that are serving the Lord because of who he is are presented before the Lord and the Lord says, you know, uh, enter into your reward. You did this when uh, you brought me a cup of water when I was in prison. And they said, when did I do that? And, and then there are those that said, but Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he says, go away from me because I never, I never knew you. That's scary stuff, right? Because it has to do with what we believe that's not true. So we want to believe what is true. There is only one God. And there is only one Christ. And that's what's going on here in Hebrews. I'm going to read the passage for this morning. Because I realize that I've gone a long way this time. But, but actually, this is, no, but this is actually really what... The reason I... I took so much time on this question is because it's a fundamental issue in how we approach God and how we approach our understanding of what the Christian faith really means and what it is that we're embracing and professing. And what happens is, he says, concerning him, this is Jesus, the high priest, I'm now back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and I'm going to read through uh, chapter 6, verse 3. Because this is, I just gave you the whole lesson this morning and the answer to this question. <laughs> Concerning him, Jesus, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. So, let me, uh, let me give a, a quick summary, because I know you're going to ponder this all week, because this is one of those, it's leading up to a very stern warning. We need to understand the setting to the warning. 
The setting is this. People were struggling with um, who Christ is and how this one could be actually qualified to be a high priest. And what that meant, if you're a Jew, they have a particular understanding of the, of the cultic practice and the priesthood and the high priest in particular and atonement. And how is, how is Christ fulfilling that? Right? And what he's saying to them, he says, you know, you guys should know this by now. Um, you're Jews. Um, you've been under uh, first-hand witness instruction about who Christ is. And yet, you still don't get the, the fundamentals of the faith. The elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you need milk and not, move, not, uh, not meat. And he then differentiates between what it looks like to be a baby Christian and what it looks like to be a mature Christian. Now, he does this not because he's given them a smackdown. It would be really easy to look at the language here and the tone as if he's doing a smackdown on these people. That's not what's happening. This is actually a mother's love or a father's love. He's actually saying, you know, I care so much about you that I want you to really get this. And it's appropriate that you understand the gravity of this lesson. That's what he's saying. He says, we're going to talk about these things. We're going to talk about the elementary teachings, uh, about uh, foundation of repentance and, uh, and new life. We're going to talk about instructions and washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So I'll unpack that for you a little bit more next week. He says, yeah, we'll talk about that if God permits. But what I want you to know is I want you to know the fundamentals. Before we argue about foot washing, before we argue about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, let's talk about what it means to know Christ. And that you can do all of these other things and not know Christ. And this is a, a mother or a father's love for his child saying, Hey, pay attention. We need to be eating meat and not drinking milk. Let's grow up. So I actually have five minutes left. Um, so the, the whole point of uh, not milk is that growth is something all Christians must do. You're either maturing or you're dying. And that's something that, um, you know, I, I make the statement, gravity rules. And I first saw that on a bumper sticker after I got on the ground after my first skydive. Right? And it takes, it takes a lot to, uh, and I did it, uh, um, I didn't jump tandem my first jump. I jumped with uh, the jump master. Um, has his chute on, and he's in the plane, and I get outside the plane, put my foot on the wheel, and I'm hanging on to the strut, you know, and, uh, and and once you actually put one foot out the door, they will push you out. <laughs> I'll never forget. The door's closed. Before they open the door, he looks at you, and he grabs your helmet. Look at me. I die. Are you ready to make a skydive today? This is a yes or no question. <laughs> and uh, if you answer no, there's no shame. You go to the back, um, the door doesn't come open for you. Right? There's no shame. That's okay. But if you say yes, and he opens the door, and you put your foot outside, 
it is more dangerous for you to come back into the aircraft than for them to throw you out. Oh, wow. Yes, because once the door is open, you got wind current going, yep. and if your pilot chute catches inside the plane, it could inflate and bring the plane down. So they will throw you out. I mean, it's for the safety of everybody on board. And so I'm out there, hanging on to the wind, and I uh, let go of the plane, and I'll never forget that aircraft's moving away from me, and I'm doing my arch, doing all the things they taught me. And they threw my pilot chute behind me, so the jump master throws my pilot chute behind me, so you get about two seconds of free fall before the pilot chute kind of flops in the wind and inflates, and then it pulls your main chute out of the bag. And then you have to do this thing where you, you if your lines get tangled, you have to untangle them, and then you um, check and make sure you can flare the chute. And all this time, you know, it's all mechanical going through all of the things that they've taught you. And then finally it's like, wow, I have a canopy above me inflated. Thank God I can't wait till I get to the ground. <laughs> I get to the ground, I see the bumper sticker, gravity rules. <laughs> I learned something very important that day. Um, God rules. Not that I didn't know that before, but I knew it in a, a new and very fundamental way. And the reason I bring this up is because if I had not come to that awareness, I would not have been able to progress to the next step in my maturity and growth in Christ. I needed to know where the surety of my life was. I needed to understand these fundamentals so that I could then grow and I could tell you things of what I believe about um, baptism and laying on of hands and eternal judgment. I mean, these are weighty ideas. Some of the things we threw out today, this is, this is uh, a master's level stuff. Right? Um, the reason I could progress to that is because I got the basics. And it's like an escalator. You're either going up or you're going down. Right? Um, you have to work to go up if you're going up the down escalator. And what's happening is that we're all on the down escalator. So we're having to work to get to the top. And if you stop for any moment, you're going right back. That's what this is about. We cannot be living on milk. Babies do not survive. They have to grow up. This isn't a choice. Growth is something that all Christians must do. And that there's a tension between knowledge and action. There's what happens internally and what happens externally. What we express in our faith is a result of what is going on in the heart. And you've all heard me say this. We're almost out of time. We are. <clears throat> Pardon? Two minutes. Two minutes. Um, so, to understand that there's a tension in what we learn about God and how we progress in knowledge um, of Him and uh, growth in maturity. It will never be easy. You will never have uh, the right answer. God does not give you the test booklet um, and say, okay, it's multiple choice, A, B, C, D, and there's a key at the end. It doesn't work like that. It's always a struggle because God is, is the master surgeon, and he knows exactly all of those things in your heart that need to be corrected. Um, he knows the behaviors that you have that are the result of something that happened 
you were two years old, right? Um, he knows exactly how to work through the circumstances of your life to help you be a successful Christian, to help you grow up and express Christ. Right? He is the master surgeon, and he is carefully dividing. That's why it leads into this. It says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. That's who God is, and that's what he's about doing. And what we have to do, our active part, is to, is to work. Is to not work works of righteousness, trying to earn God's favor, but to work to keep from the natural, inevitable flow of going downhill happening. And that if we don't, we're going to end up empty. And that's what, when you read through the, the letters to the churches in Revelation... That's what happens. You see a progression from a church that lost its first love to a church that's an empty shell. And finally to a Christian who has neither healing nor refreshment in him. And God just wants to spit him out of his mouth. And that's what happens if you don't take this seriously and be active in your faith. Let's go ahead and, and stop there. Because I want to frame this as, as uh, a loving servant of God, telling us the truth about who God is and what it means to, to walk in faith. And that what you see following is a reflection of the loving heart of God. Lord, um, I just thank you that this is Mother's Day. That, uh, even though Hallmark created it, it is indeed an, an opportunity for us to um, show our worship to you uh, by uh, honoring those that uh, are mothers and wives and sisters that um, you created, that you gave such an incredible calling on their lives. Lord, um, I, I didn't even know how to express it in words. Um, but I'm very thankful for that. And I'm thankful that Aaron uh, offered that we should read Proverbs 31 uh, this morning and that that gives us a reflection of what it looks like to truly follow after you. And, uh, and Lord, we want to honor uh, those in our presence today um, that are following after you and that have that calling on their life. Lord, we also recognize that we're coming into a very serious passage in Hebrews that's uh, very difficult to wrestle with. And how, what is it that is really uh, being talked about here and what's really at stake? Uh, Lord, we want to be really clear, and we want to understand what your word has to say to us in this regard. And so, Lord, we ask that you open your word to us, that you open our hearts to hear, and our ears to hear. Lord, we, uh, we ask that we not just be hearers, but doers, that we apply that which we learn, that it wouldn't be just head knowledge, but that it would be uh, part of our, our heart and our being and how we live in your presence. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you would be with us today as we celebrate Mother's Day, uh, we ask that you would be with Bob as he presents your message this morning, and that many would hear, that maybe aren't normally here uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning, that they would hear your word go out, and then it would touch their hearts. Lord, we ask that you uh, go before us and behind us, and that you protect and provide, and we thank you so much for your service to us, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name.